0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on Christian worldview with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about the Lord's Supper and how that affects how we view the world and how we act in the world. Do be aware that we are releasing a couple of extra podcasts this week we just put out our theopolis christmas bash yesterday and coming up we also have a christmas album recommendations podcast just like we did last year and i've linked last year's episodes in the show notes we really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening and here is james jordan discussing christian worldview and the lord's supper
1: This is a class in basic Christian worldview, and uh, we have been talking about the way that the Bible looks at the world, and we've started at the center, and the center of things is the church, or God's special manifestation in divine worship performed before his throne when heaven is open in a special way and God draws near in a special way. We began with a consideration of the doctrine of the church, and we've moved on to begin to talk about worship and the sacraments. And then last week we began a discussion of the doctrine of revelation or of the Word of God and how God speaks to us. And that's what this little piece of paper here is all about. You might look at it. We're going to continue to talk about that today. And we're talking about the two ways in which God reveals Himself to us what is sometimes called Word revelation and natural revelation or special revelation and general revelation. What I am calling, because I think it's a little bit clearer, verbal revelation, you see, and sensible revelation. And we said that these things are never separated one from the other. God tells man in his general word of the cultural mandate to take dominion and to rule the earth. Simultaneously with that, God reveals himself in providence, in the creation. If God was not revealing himself in the world, the word that he spoke to man, man could never apply. God says, don't eat that tree, you've got to be able to tell what a tree is. And so two things are necessary, sensible revelation and verbal revelation, the thing and the understanding. And then there's the special word that God gave to Adam in the garden, what we would call the sabbatical area of life, as opposed to the cultural, what man does before God's throne at certain special times. And in connection with that, the command was, don't eat of the wrong special tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but by implication you should enter into the proper special tree, the tree of life, which later on in the Bible is identified as a sacrament of God, and enter into God's rest. And so in connection with that, there were two special trees, which were the special signs. So there's the word, and then there's the sign, the sacramental sign of some sort. After the fall of man, redemptive revelation was attached to the Sabbath, because redemption is designed so that man can attain the rest which he failed to attain before the fall because of his sin. It was never an attainment on works, but it was a matter of persevering in proper faith and doing the things that faith requires, faithful works, covenant loyalty, whatever you want to call it. And here we have the verbal revelation, which is the proclamation of the gospel, And the gospel is not simply forgiveness, but primarily it's that God is both just and the justifier of his people, and thus it involves a proclamation both of vengeance and of salvation. It involves the proclamation of his justice and the enthronement of his kingdom on the earth, which is blessing to some and wrath to those who refuse to believe. And then there are special signs attached to this proclamation miracles, and sacraments. In the Old Testament, miracles always seem to accompany this proclamation. Miracles or some other special sign. And in the New Covenant, that special sign, all those special signs that took place in the Old Covenant are rolled up into two, the sacraments. The sacrament of coming through the door and the sacrament of sitting down at the, of sitting down at the table. Now, the points to keep in mind, just to go over this again... First of all, the special signs are never silent, but are always accompanied by verbal revelation. You know, if you go into a dark house and you see something over in the corner and you don't know what it is, it might, it can make you feel very uneasy until you have a word for it. Adam was supposed to go out and put words on things, because language is the way we come to understand the world. And yet the world is also there. And so God, when he gives signs, whether it's a special memorial pillar or a memorial ritual or a memorial day or any other sign that God gives, is always accompanied by verbal explanation so that we know what it is and what it's a sign of. On the other hand, and this is something that we as Protestants tend to neglect, verbal revelation is never separated from the special sign, never in the Bible. True prophets are always authenticated by special signs, first of all. B, let's just read this down to get it before our minds. Even though God's word by itself is absolutely certain, he confirms it with an oath, which is a sort of an addition to the word of God. And it's not just added on because of our sinfulness, it's added on because this is the way God reveals himself, a testimony of two witnesses. See, when the word was preached to Adam, the sign was clothing with skins. When the word was preached to Noah, the sign was the rainbow, always together. When the word was preached to Abram, the sign was the sacrament of circumcision. The sign of sacrifice and sacrament, as we discussed it, was attached to the word throughout the Old Covenant. And then there are other things that we could look at if we wanted to spend a year and a half in this particular subject. Other special forms of sensible revelation include miracles. We spent time on that last week. Memorial pillars and stones, all the washings for cleansing, all the sacrifices, the fulfillment of predictive prophecy. All of these are things that go along with the word which attest it and are inseparable from it. In the area 30 to 33 AD, the special sign was the person and miracles of Christ. After Pentecost, the special sign or presence of miracle is the sacraments. That is sort of what's important for us. Thus, three, this dual revelation forms the testimony of two witnesses. There is not a, this is not a condescension to our sinful weakness, but is a reflex of the one and manyness of God. God comes to us in one way, we might say he comes to us in the word, and then we look into that and we find that the word manifests itself in various ways, and I don't mean that to be a direct analogy to the Trinity, but simply that there is unity and diversity in the way God reveals himself to us. The bottom line is that God's revelation is distorted when preaching and sacraments are separated. That is our topic this morning. Now, last week we spent most of the hour talking about miracles. We found that miracles are not a violation of any natural laws. When God made the universe, he did not stick certain laws into it so that it runs by itself, which laws are investigated and summarized in modern science, which modern science starts with this presupposition. There is no such thing, there is no way to accommodate Christian faith in modern science because of the presuppositions of modern science. Modern science presupposes natural law, and there is no such thing as natural law. There are simply covenantal regularities established in Genesis chapter 9, where God says he will do certain things the same way all the time so we can count on them. When we assume that uh, this watch will fall when I drop it, that's because God pulls it down or God pushes it down or God's angels pull it down, but it's not because it automatically goes down because of inbuilt laws. There are no inbuilt laws. There are simply covenantal regularities that God has covenanted with us. He will do things the same way that we can count on them, and therefore, counting on them, we can move forward in the cultural mandate. As a mandate, therefore, is an, the cultural mandate when we fulfill it, is an act of faith. We believe that God will do, cause things to happen the same way all the time, except when he chooses to make iron float to the top of the lake or the other things that he chooses to do, which are different from what he usually does. And when God does something different from the way he usually does it, we call that a miracle. And those happen as attesting signs to the word of God. Now, the equivalent to that is the sacraments, and I'm not going to repeat all that that we had last week. Let's talk this week for a while about liturgy and language and the Lord's Supper. And some of this is review, but I want to take it a few steps farther. We have seen that liturgy in worship is conversation with God. Liturgy is conversation with God. It's not mystical in character. It's linguistic in character. God speaks to us. And we return speech to him. Our liturgy is a dialogue between God and us. God speaks. God tells us, guides us in things to say back to him. If we rebel and say the wrong things back to him, he curses us. If we are faithful and say the proper things back to him he blesses us. But God speaking to us is not merely words that come in the ear, but it's a holistic kind of speech, and that's what we need to look at today. And our re- the speech we return to God is holistic in character. It's not simply language. Now we've seen further that this conversation between God and us has a performative character. There are various kinds of language, aren't there? There are questions, I can ask you a question, that's a kind of language. Questions are neither true nor false. They're not inerrant. There's no such thing as an inerrant question. There are authoritative questions. they are questions that probe deep into the soul, such as, Adam, where art thou? Or Simon Peter, lovest thou me? Those are questions that probe to the soul, but they're not errant or inerrant. They are applicable or inapplicable, they're good or bad, they either have they might be confusing questions, but that's what questions are like. Then there are propositions. Propositions, by definition, are either true or false. They're errant or inerrant. When we say the Bible is inerrant, what we mean is all the propositions which claim to be from God and not from, say, the devil, uh, are inerrant. But then there is performative language. Would someone like to remind us of what performative language is? Performative language is things like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Reporting that would be, last night we had a baptism in the church and I baptized so-and-so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's reporting and that's informative language. But the performative language actually is the baptism. Or, I now pronounce you man and wife. That performs an act. Before that language was spoken, they were not married. Afterwards, they were. Before the baptism, the child is to be counted as and treated as an enemy of God. After the baptism, the child is counted as and treated as a member of the covenant. Baptism does something to us. It puts the child from sin and death into the covenant. We don't say what it does to the heart, but we say what it does to the covenant. Now, these are performative acts, and we went through our entire liturgy and we saw that everything we do is performative. God speaks to us words of command. We say back to him, confessions of faith. Confessions of faith is a performance, something that we do. If we falsely confess, then we're judged. God gives us food, we eat it. These are things that we do. Now, our problem is that we have a very simplistic, we have inherited a simplistic and false separation between faith and works which boils down to a distinction between language and activity what is faith well faith is committing yourself to Jesus and trusting in him and what are works well works are going out and doing things now the Bible doesn't separate it that way when the Bible talks about works being bad it means works which are have the wrong attitude the wrong faith going along with them Faith There are acts of faith and there are attitudes of faith, and these things always go together. Man who has the proper attitude will have the proper actions. If you stop and think about it, throughout our entire life we are always doing something. Right now you are doing something. You are engaging in a work. You may be sleeping. You may be listening. You may be wrestling with your child. You may be wishing you weren't here, but you are doing something. See, you are engaged in an activity, and that activity either glorifies God or denigrates God. It either is an an activity on your part, what you are doing right now, is either faithful or faithless. It either betrays faith in the true God or faith in what is not God, faith in yourself, faith in something else. Thus, James can properly say in James chapter 2 that there is no truth, faith without true works. And where we see false false works, that indicates false faith. But what we mean by faith and works always go together. That's why we talk about faithfulness. Because when you talk about faithfulness in your mind, that embraces what you do as well as what you think. Men are always doing something. And they always have an attitude about what they're doing. Attitudes and actions are inseparable. And throughout your entire life, except when you're asleep, you are, you are acting and you have an attitude. The question is not, do our attitudes save us and our actions don't, but what is the faithful act-attitude complex and what is the faithless act-attitude complex? Now, there may be some confusion because of sin. In other words, there are times when people profess the wrong thing and then they go out and do the right thing. And then there are times when people profess the right thing and go out and do the wrong thing. Jesus calls attention to this in Matthew chapter 21, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Let me just read it. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, Certainly. But he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But the second said, No, I will not. And yet afterwards he regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the latter. Now, of course, that's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, but it applies to all kinds of situations in life. There's no question but that because of sin, acts and attitudes get confused, and yet these things go together in the Bible. The man's true faith was demonstrated by his works. Now, we have seen, just to repeat again, that when God speaks, he always does something along with his speech. When he does something, he always speaks along with it. God never does anything without giving words to interpret it. God never gives words without doing something to back it up or to seal it, a form of interpretation. Now, we who are made in the image of God must do the same thing. When we respond to God, we say things and we also do things, faith and works. God comes to us. Manifesting word and works, we might say, or his word comes to us in verbal and in powerful form, active form, and when we return speech to God, we have to return that speech in verbal and in action form. We can see God doing this throughout the Bible. For instance, in the creation, you see God's word coming, he speaks, and the world comes into existence. His works and his word go together. In the redemption, we have the history of redemption, what Christ did, and then we have the interpretation of it. These things go together. And when man comes to believe, what does a man have to believe to be saved? He has to believe that Christ died and rose again, but that by itself doesn't mean a thing. He has to believe that that was done for our sins, for our transgressions, to manifest the justice of God. All right? Christ died, we might say, and died for us. The action and the interpretation. If you have a bunch of interpretations without believing that the actions took place, you wind up with a philosophy, like Hinduism. Well, we believe all these facts. We believe this great system here, but whether it ever took place in history or not is unimportant. Bardianism. On the other hand, if you just have a bunch of historical events with no interpretation, you don't have anything there either. Now, how this applies to us, God tells us to believe certain things, and he tells us to do some certain things as expressions of our persons, just as he has said and done certain things as expressions of his person. I think it helps us to see when we see that the word of God is not simply what we think of as language, but it's also an expression of his person, and it's also powerful. For instance, in the Genesis 1 would be as good an example as any of God's speaking and things coming to pass, the power inherent in his word. But in Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in that for which I sent it. That is God's word is a power that goes forth from him and does certain things. Now, there is a philosophy that separates these things and says there's a power word and there is a language word and they're different. The Bible never separates. The Bible says whenever God speaks language, things happen. And whenever God does things, language accompanies it. But the the word of God is not only authoritative, It's also powerful. It does things. And the third characteristic of the word of God is that it's self-expressive. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Where God's word is put forth, he is present. Now, those are the characteristics of God's speech, we might say. Three characteristics. It's communication. It is his presence. He is present there. And it involves actions. Things happen or things are done when God speaks. When his word goes forth, it does things. So that works, God's works, God's communication, and God's presence are together. And there are three aspects of his word. Now, we as the image of God have the same thing. When we return speech to God in worship or in life, three things need to be present. What we say and what we believe. Our heart must be in it. Our person must be in it. And our actions or our works must be in it. And these things all go together. They are inseparable in the Bible. So it's there's a false dichotomy, you see, in saying, well, we are saved by faith and then works are over here. No, we are saved by personal commitment. Faith works complex when it's true in the true God. True faith is faithfulness or covenant loyalty. Now, this is particularly true, we maintain, in the special area of life, the miraculous area of special worship. What is done? That is, we might say we speak to God, we hear God's speech, we return speech to him in prayer, but apart from the personal engagement in worship, which we can confess, and the second area. The speech that we give, what are we to do in worship? What is the doing part? See, God comes to us with language, doing, and personal involvement. We go back to God with language, personal involvement, and doing. What do we do in special worship? What does Jesus say to do? Well, that's not hard to figure out. It's in 1 Corinthians 11, we better turn there, we'll be there for a while. What do we do? Well, we could go through the liturgy and see the different kinds of things that we do because, as we said, all of our speech is performative in character. But there is one preeminent thing that we're commanded to do, one act, one work, to work the works of God, as Jesus put it. And this work doesn't bind God to us so that he has to save us in any Roman meritorious sense, but it is the preeminent expression of covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll just read 24 and 25, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Now, that is what we do. Now, let's just break that down and look at what is done in this ritual. All right. In the Bible, when Jesus inaugurated the Last Supper, there is what uh, liturgists call a sevenfold action. We think through it; seven different things happen. The sevenfold action in the Lord's Supper. First of all, Jesus took bread. Then he gave thanks for it. Now let's just repeat ourselves from last time. He didn't bless it in the sense of laying a hand on it and consecrating it. but he gave thanks for it like grace before a meal. Then he broke it, and he gave it. That's four. Taking, giving thanks, breaking, distributing. All right? Then he took the cup that's five. He gave thanks for it, six, and he gave it out, seven. Now, right away in the church, this sevenfold action is reduced to four. Four things. Take the bread and wine, give thanks for the bread and wine, break the bread, and then give the bread and wine. Now, the reason that that reduction took place is because when Jesus inaugurated the Last Supper, he did it as part of a meal, and there's no... In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that the breaking of the bread and passing the bread around and the giving of the cup were separated as different parts of the meal. So there was other things going on. And I suppose if we wanted to have a love feast in the church and have the Lord's Supper as part of it, uh, that could be done too in two separate actions. However, the church right away uh, coalesced these things into one meal as part of the worship service, as the sacramental part of the service, and uh, didn't see any need to make two separate actions out of the bread and the cup. Now, we lose something in that because the bread and the cup mean different things. Uh, the bread signifies not only the body of Christ in the sense that um, we feed on him personally, but it also signifies the church in that we all are members of the body. And the distribution of the bread means that, uh, is a sign of fellowship one with another. The cup doesn't mean that. We don't shed blood for each other. Uh, Only the blood of Christ um, can save us. And so there are differences in meaning between the two elements, and yet the church is, generally speaking, uh, put these things together. Now let's look at our liturgy and see where these things take place, because these are the actions which are done. Look in the first part of the liturgy at page 13. Now, this is something of a review and an expansion of what we did a couple of weeks ago. Page 13 of the liturgy. We have a form of the kiss of peace here. The peace of the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And then the Sursum Corda, where we lift up our hearts to God. And then let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is proper and right to do so. Now, the first thing was to take... The elements, and then the second thing is to give thanks. Now this presupposes that the elements have already been brought and are, have been taken, and now a large thanksgiving takes place. Now if you think back on what we've already studied, at what point in the worship service as a whole were, was everything brought forward and given to God so that it's taken? Well, it's the offertory. The climax of the morning service is the offertory where we offer ourselves, our gifts, and our prayers to God. It's the whole burnt sacrifice. And there everything is brought down and it's taken. Then thanks is given for it, ourselves, our works, everything about us, and then we engage in the communion. But there is a more specific time of thanksgiving which is directly associated with the elements themselves, and that takes place on page 15. And I think it's important that we look at the theology of this prayer of institution so that you can understand it better. Now, let's don't pray this, but let's look at it. Truly, uh, we have just sung with the angels, holy, 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 all right? We've 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 joined the heavenly choir, and we've just sung that. Now, truly you are holy, almighty and merciful God. Truly you are holy, and great is the majesty of your glory. So much did you love the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life. Now we come to the words of institution. Who, having come into the world to fulfill for us your holy will and to accomplish all things for our salvation, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now here is where the elements proper are taken. This is where the the ritual in its most concentrated form takes place. Um, Just parenthetically, I want you to understand where I'm going The ritual that God prescribes has a very concentrated form right here at the center of the evening service. It has a more expanded form in the service as a whole, because the service as a whole takes the same form. And it has an even more expanded form in everything we do in life, because giving thanks, breaking and eating is what we do in all of life. We'll see that at the end of the lesson today. And so what God has given as a ritual right at the very center of our worship is to characterize, qualify, and discipline our entire life and everything we do. And so the first, the very point at the center is this right here. The next circle around it is the liturgy as a whole, and the larger circle around that is everything we do in life. So with that idea of where we're going to go, let's look here at the very concentrated point where the fourfold action takes place. In the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now it says, Here the officiant shall take the bread in his hand. Now you don't see that because you are praying. The bread is taken and shown to God. It's not lifted up so that anyone can adore it or look at it, but it is shown to God by being taken up, because God said to take it. Now it's, in other words, we show to God, this is the bread that we are blessing. This is the bread that we are asking you to bless as we give thanks and as we take the communion. It is shown to him as a heave offering or a wave offering. We've looked at that before. Then we have the words of institution. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take heed, this is my body which is given for you, this do as a memorial of me. would be more literal translation. Perhaps we'll have time to look at that memorial. After the same manner also, he took the cup. Here again, the element is taken in the hand. We do exactly what Jesus says. Take bread, take the cup, that is to display to, to, for God's eyes that this is, these are the elements that we are going to use in the sacrament in obedience to his command. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This do. Now we come to the second part. Take it. Give thanks. Notice the next paragraph. We acknowledge, Heavenly Father, that this is the memorial which shows forth the death of your Son. And so we remember his salutary precept, his life-giving suffering and death, his glorious resurrection, ascension, and enthronement and the promise of his coming again, we give thanks to you. Now, this is grace before meal, but in its most concentrated form. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, not as we ought, but as we are able. So we've made a confession about the fact that this is the memorial. Now, it's not to say that the bread and the wine, as they sit here on the table, are the memorial. They're not. We'll come to that in a minute but the service is a memorial. We give thanks to you, not as we are, but as we are able, and we beg you mercifully to accept our praise and thanksgiving. We ask that you bless with your word and Holy Spirit us who are your servants, and of these your own gifts of bread and wine." Why? Because the bread signifies the church. And so the body sacramental and the body mystical are both to be blessed. Now, at the bottom of page 16. The communion. Then shall the officiant place the bread into the hands of those distributing it. Now at this point it's broken. There's no breaking which is done before your eyes. The reason for that is that the breaking of the bread does not signify the death of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible, not a body, not a bone of His body was broken. The breaking of the bread signifies the distribution of the church one to one to another, so that uh, we feed on each other. In fellowship as we feed on Christ. That is, there's a mutual incorporation or community that takes place in Christ. And this is for the purpose of distribution. But it's broken here, and then it's given. And the wine, the blood of Christ, is also passed out and given. And you are exhorted at this point to feed on Him with your true, with your whole purpose, whole person. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Feed on him with the whole person. Now that is the most concentrated form of the fourfold ritual. But, as we have seen, when God takes the trouble to establish that ritual, it is a discipline which extends out into all of life. I'd like to say just one word about what this does in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this is sort of the heart of Protestantism here, I think, to understand this properly. The Lord's death is not proclaimed by holding the elements up and showing them to people. The bread and wine don't become something else and then proclaim it uh, by visual... Uh, by some visual action. We sometimes speak of the sacraments as visible words, and yet it's not, it's not the seeing of the bread and wine, which is a proclamation. Nor is the breaking of the bread or the pouring out of wine into separate glasses or anything like that where the proclamation takes place. But the proclamation is in the doing. And what is done, in particular, is eating. To eat the bread and to drink the wine. But the whole thing is the proclamation from start to finish. In other words, the taking, the giving thanks, the breaking of the bread, and the giving out, this all proclaims the Lord's death as a whole. What that means is for us as Protestants, there is no magical moment in the worship service where the elements change into something else or even are, suppo- or even are set apart so that they have to be set back apart to common use at the end. This is what God does to us. He comes and he tells us to do this fourfold action. Now I'm running out of time. I'm going to have to cut something out here. This is a memorial that God has established. God takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative in establishing this memorial. He says, do this in remembrance of me. That's I'm going to have to summarize here. But that does not mean, when you do this, that does not only mean, when you do this, think back and remember. In other words, this is uh, an aid to meditation. Uh, in the medieval church, the sacraments become aids to devotion, aids to meditation. They also become that in Protestant churches very readily. This doesn't mean anything by This doesn't have any power in and of itself that God has established, but it's a means to devotion and when the sacrament becomes a means to devotion then all kinds of other things also come in as aids to devotion to help you think to help you remember we put the stations of the cross along the wall so that we can look at them and uh, has an aid to devotion to remember back through certain things that's not quite what this word remembrance means it means as a memorial and this is what we don't have time to do but if we looked at the Old Testament, we'd find that God establishes various memorials. Sometimes he sets up a pile of stones and says, this pile of stones will be a memorial. And the memorial is there whether anybody sees it or not. It's there whether anybody takes any notice of it or not. People walk by and say, hmm, a pile of stones and pay no attention to it. And yet, God established it as a memorial. It's like a flag is planted there whether people see it or not. Similarly, in Exodus 3:15, when God gives His name Yahweh, "I am that I am," that is His memorial name. In Exodus 12:14, he establishes a certain day as a memorial day. In Exodus 13 verse 9, he establishes a ritual as a memorial ritual. The point of this is that God establishes this. This is the way God's word comes to us in speech and in doing. And then we do something back to God as a word of response. Now, all of these Old Testament doings are rolled into our sacraments. There are all kinds of things they were supposed to do. All kinds of memorials that they had. God came in all kinds of different miraculous memorial oath ways to confirm his word to them. For us, he comes in one way. That is, in two ways, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But let's set baptism aside and talk mainly about the Lord's Supper. That's where God comes in this doing fashion. What do we do back? Well, we do the fourfold ritual of the Lord's Supper. Now, what happens, as happened in church history, and has brought us to the past that we're in, in Protestantism, the church tends to fall either into doing without saying, or into saying without doing. That is, it tends to pick one side of this twofold revelation of language, communication, and activity, and take one without the other. So in Eastern Orthodoxy and in Roman Catholicism, all the preaching, all the explanation, all the theology simply fell out as far as the church went. You had theologians cloistered away here and there, but it's not in the church. You have a real elaborate liturgy, but you don't have any type of teaching. What happens then is that false teaching and false understandings arise. You've got certain things that you're doing, but you don't understand them properly. Men being sinners, wrong understandings start to come up around these things. You know, it's interesting. In the Roman Catholic Church, they do exactly the same thing that I'm talking about doing. They take it. They give thanks for it. They break it and they pass it out. The fourfold action is still there. The entire interpretation of it is wrong because the interpretation side of it has been lost and then satanic misinterpretation has been fed in. Now the problem, in, and then once that happens, when this the liturgy ritual in its most concentrated form begins to expand outward into a larger liturgy, around it, that is a whole worship service, that becomes fairly perverted because that expansion is based on the understanding of the fourfold ritual. And when it expands out into all of life, it becomes even more perverted because the expansion of that concentrated ritual is largely determined by the understanding of it. So as a result, everything becomes perverted. The problem in Protestantism is that the church has fallen into saying without doing. This wasn't the reformers' idea. They wanted the Lord's Supper always, every time the word was preached. But the tendency in Protestantism, and this follows on certain traditions in the Middle Ages as well, is to fall into saying without doing. So as a result, you have all this teaching, which at least at the center is correct, justification by faith. But you don't have the 4-4 ritual with it on a regular basis. And as a result, you begin to get other substitute doings or rituals that replace the memorial that God has set up. I'll give you two examples. One is extreme Sabbatarianism. In other words, keeping the Sabbath in the old covenant way of a memorial. Extreme Sabbatarianism. And I think extreme Sabbatarianism arises where the Lord's Supper is not made... uh regular part of worship another thing that arises is things like the altar call men find other things to do because they are not doing what god commands in the form of the ritual or extreme views of worship in protestantism this generally takes the form of negative things you can't do this and you can't do that you can't sing hymns you can't have musical instruments you can't do this you can't do that then there's this feedback you see Just as you had it in the highly ritualized churches where the ritual is misunderstood and then that feeds back and perverts the liturgy, so you have it in Protestant circles where the liturgy isn't ever done and new liturgies come up to replace the one that God established, then you have a feedback into doctrine. And what that feedback is, is a separation of faith and works. Because we aren't doing what God has said to do on a regular basis, doing becomes unimportant. Unimportant. All that matters is some type of meditation or having a notebook full of all kinds of Bible truths. But doing is less important. And uh, the result of that in the church has been a very passive type of worship where you sit and listen. The result of it in Protestant civilization is that the church doesn't do anything. In Protestant civilizations, the church doesn't do anything. And you just contrast it. Go to Latin America. What does the church have? Hospitals, schools, everything. They're perverted, we would say. But the church is doing all kinds of stuff. In Protestant civilizations, the state does everything. And before the state was doing it, individuals and private corporations were doing it, but the church never did it. How many strong Protestant hospitals and strong Protestant schools are there in English-speaking countries? Now, in the Netherlands, is a little bit different because in the Netherlands... The sacraments and the the preaching were never strongly separated as they have been in the English-speaking countries. But the doing aspect of the faith really falls out. Now I'm going to have to close real quick, but I want to stress this again by showing how these things work. What is the bare minimum faith that we need that involves this believing and doing? Well, God comes and he does certain acts and he gives an explanation of those acts. Christ dies and is resurrected and then there's an interpretation. And how does man respond believing and doing? He puts active faith in that. He believes it and he acts upon it. That action may take various forms, but that's what we would call bare minimum faith. Second of all, this believing and doing, the liturgy before God, we receive the Word of God in various forms, including both the miraculous, with cursing and blessing attached to it, and the, uh, verbal communication form, and then we do responses. The most concentrated form we just looked at, in the larger form in the morning service, we, the height of the morning service is that we bring everything together as an offering to God. We pray, that is, all the prayers that we have are thanksgivings, and then we share. All the forms of sharing in the church have to do with the breaking of the bread and the distribution of the bread, and we enjoy, those are the four things, enjoy, that is, take in the bread and wine. How does this flow into all of life? Well, we receive God's Word which comes to us in the two forms. And then the fourfold things that we do, we work with the creation, that's the taking. We take what God has said out there. God has given us this entire world to take and to use to His glory. We give thanks in all things. We share, that's the breaking and distribution, sharing with one another. And I don't have time to go into that, but the sharing of the bread corresponds to the way we would share material goods with each other and the sharing of the blood of Christ has to do with the way we would sacrifice for each other. Uh, Protestants are real weak in this area. And then we enjoy the creation that God has made. That is, that's the fourfold action. And that's in all of life. When you don't have that at the center of life, you don't have it out in the broad extremes of life. When it gets warped and distorted in the center of life, it gets warped and distorted out in all of life. The result is the church is weak. The gospel isn't clearly understood because people aren't acting in a way that would help them to understand it.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.